Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Joe and I are thrilled to be here talking about such an amazing medium, pastel, which in um, words of uh, Christopher Baker in the catalogue, he writes, pastel which in the right hands combines exquisite delicacy with startling immediacy and vibrancy. And that's really true when you see the Leotard exhibition upstairs. To summarise what we're going to talk about tonight, I'm going to give a whistle-stop tour of pastel drawing and painting in the art history, concentrate on the 18th century developments when pastel painting was at its height of popularity. I'll look at Leotard's use of the medium and then I'll skip on to conservation and care of pastels. Joe will then talk about materials and techniques a bit more closely and uh, variations and advances in pastel today, up to today, um, with demonstrations of pastel making. She's made some beautiful pastels, which you'll get to see. I also recommend that you do read the catalogue essays on materials and techniques, which are really interesting. And there's a book by Thea Burns, which I reviewed a few years ago, which is probably why I'm here, uh, called The History of Pastel Painting, which is full of fantastic facts and um, a great read. What we're talking about tonight is pastel, which is basically an artist's crayon made of dried paste of ground pigments with filler and binder. And these can be all sorts of things. The fillers give solidity and tone to the pastel and the binder holds the particles together. So the fillers can be clay or chalk and the binders generally a gum of some sort or olive oil or honey or ale or milk or many things that they tried in the past. Pastel is characterised most by its high pigment ratio, up to 90%, which is more than 40% more than most oil paints, giving it a very intense colour. Pastel developed from the chalk drawing tradition. Chalk and pastel were terms that have been used synonymously in literature for many centuries, and they come from pastello, which was the Italian term for any pencil-y chalk um, crayon-based drawing material. Chalks, of course, are amorphous mineral pigments containing clay, were found freely in the Tuscan countryside, for instance, and they were judged on their hardness and their colours. That was the way chalks were differentiated from pastels in many texts. However, the two are very interchangeable and it's quite difficult to identify chalks from pastels in many cases. Looking at a 15th century Leonardo cartoon from the um, National Gallery, which is charcoal heightened with white chalk on paper, and a, a portrait by Francois Clouet, which is a uh, 16th century, which uh, Clouet used a limited palette of, of black chalk and then highlighted with various colours, natural chalks. And the Clouets really um, heralded the beginning of the period where pastels and coloured drawing materials came into usage. 1570s is noted as the first pastel recipes that are still on record and fabricated chalks were, still, were also being developed by this time. So often it's very hard to tell the difference between the two, even with scientific analysis. Pastel recipes abounded from the late 17th century on. Lely's 1663 recipe is a good example of it. Pastels began being produced and sold in sets at this early time 
and the true origin of, of the sets of, that we call pastels today began then in the late 17th century. By 1700, you had people like Robert Nontoy and Joseph Vivian, who were real trailblazers in the pastel painting world. Um, Vivian was the first pa uh, pastel painter who was received at the Académie Royale um, in Paris as a pastel painter. So that was a big breakthrough for pastelists. Pastel drawing versus pastel painting it, uh, is merely a, a descriptive term. Uh, pastel painting literally means painting in pastels. It's made possible by the introduction of softer pastels, allowing colours to be blended and no strokes remaining, as in the works of both of these artists. They were able to layer different colours. Um, the whole support was surf surface was covered with medium and the very soft pastels allowed them to build up layers by layer by layer. Boucher and de la Tour were another two examples of this type of uh, pastel technique. Pastels became very popular very quickly because of their brilliant effects of colour and light, their minimum of equipment needed, and they were quicker to make than oil paintings, allowing spontaneity, speedy execution, and more comfort for the sitters in pastel portrait, in portraiture. The 17th century and early 18th century um, showed uh, pastels still being developed. They were slightly drier than the ones that came afterwards but artists such as Roselba Carriera and Le Brun and even Quentin de la Tour, who was actually uh, the direct contemporary of Lyotard, um, were able to work with these pastels very successfully. They exploited the velvety nature of them and the technical, their technical brilliance. And as pastel makers became more proficient, their, their techniques uh, improved as well. Thea Burns in her books writes, Pastel now dramatically assumed a major role as a painting medium, handled in a complex and painterly way to approximate the power and richness of oils. Pastel painting happily coincided with the rise in popularity of portraiture in general, and also an, a lot of other um, developments in, um, in the European world, including the sheets of glass that could be made, the size of the sheets of glass that could be made that were suitable for framing works. There was a huge um, kudos in, in having a painting of your, a portrait of yourself with a big sheet of glass in front of it hanging in your living room. Chalks, of course, continued to be used throughout the 17th and 18th century, um, and Lyotard used them himself in many of the drawings upstairs, uh, black and red chalks, and in some ways they're even more beautiful than, than the pastels to me. They're so evocative and very immediate, the drawings themselves. But the two mediums continue to intertwine through the, the centuries. Commercially made pastels, which were developed in the late 17th century, from 1670s and 80s onwards, um, soon became cheaper than oil paints. Uh, Swiss pastels were considered of very high quality. Brands such as Stupan were known throughout the Western Europe, European art world and they were sold in London from the 1750s onwards. Uh, pastels were sold individually or in compartmentalised boxes, just as they are today. Um, the boxes were made to rest on the artist's lap. Uh, you see uh, two images of, of pastelists at work. Um, Princess Caroline Louise 
uh, on the left is was a student of of, of leotards, and she her notes were the basis of much of what we know about leotards technique. From her, we learned that uh, pastels were applied wet or dry. They used port crayons to hold the pastel, so you wouldn't get your pretty little fingers dirty. Um, although they're not using them <laughs> there. Um, they used fine powdered, powdered colour, sometimes applied with a brush or the finger, which was called sweetening, to blend the colours in. And they used bread as an eraser where the mistakes were made. In the first sitting, a portrait would, um, portraitist would start by doing an underdrawing in chalk, charcoal or pastel. In the second sitting, they would complete the face and the third sitting, enlivening the face, retouching and highlights. So a pastel could be completed quite quickly. Uh, the 1675 text, Arts Pictoria, um, printed in London, Pictoria, printed in London, uh, stated, with your several pastilles, you rub in your colours first, then with your fingers you sweeten and mix them together, driving and scumbling them into one another after the manner of oil painters. So the artists were really trying to imitate oil paintings. However, Leotard um, lauded pastel for its beauty, vivacity, freshness and lightness of palette, more beautiful than any other kind of painting. Leotard used the medium in a way which directly challenged the primacy of oils. He had trained as an enamelist and miniaturist and his, he was a great technician. Uh, he went to Paris in the 1720s where he saw Roselba Carriera's uh, pastels and the invigoration of pastel painting. And then he travelled Europe and the Levant and um, began painting pastels himself in the 1730s. In the six, 1762 and 81, he wrote two treaties on art, both of them highly theoretical with 12 principles, 20 rules and lots of information about um, the nobility of painting, etc. But he does write a few facts about emphasising the importance of working from nature and not applying pastel or oil in suggestive touches. He believed in painting what he saw. He had a democratic eye, maybe too much so for some of his sitters. But Leotard's techniques have been researched quite recently by the Rijksmuseum, and I'm using their uh, images here and some of their information, which has only been published this year. They, uh, they studied all of their collection of, of um, leotard pastels, which is quite extensive, and you'll see some of them upstairs, and learned quite a few interest, interesting techniques about his, the way he worked. On the left, you can see um, an infrared and visible light image of um, one of his portraits, showing the, the amount of underdrawing done in the dark, the dark infrared area in the top right corner. Um, shows how much he worked up the shadows under the pastel layer and then applied his blue pastel over the top, allowing the, the dark shades to come through. He also used techniques called silhouetting, which are learned from uh, miniaturist paintings and um, from painting on glass, etc., that he would have done previously, where he 
drew the image of the figure on the verso of the sheet, the sheet of vellum so that it came through and gave additional depth to the figures themselves. So you can see that on the right-hand slide, on the, on the left-hand side of the slide is the reverse side of the vellum. You don't get to see the reverse side of many uh, pastel paintings because they're considered so precious. Many of them have never been taken out of their frames or removed from the, the backing supports that cover the, uh, the, the verso of the pastels themselves. Leotard was a big fan of vellum over paper or other substrates for his pastels. Vellum is a calf skin aged between six to eight weeks. It's a very luminous medium. It was preferred by Leotard because he liked the way it retained the brilliance of the pigment and withstood rubbing. Um, there was a smooth side and a rougher side. The smoother side was used for painting. It needed to be of a consistent thickness with no grease or blemishes or bumps. So it was well prepared, humidified and nailed to a stretcher for use. The standard size of a half figure, a portrait, um, Paint pastel portrait corresponds almost exactly to the useful part of a vellum hide. Um, so that may well have dictated the, the size of portraiture almost as much as the size of glass that could be made at that, at that time. Um, vellum allowed small scale detail while retaining property of absorbing colours more than paper or ivory. And you can appreciate the fibrous, velvety texture of the vellum in the eye detail there. It grabs the pastel pigment and imitates the texture of skin so well. It's almost eerie in some of those portraits upstairs. Uh, details of flowers, lace, jewels, etc., were um, created using wet pastel or chalk, little dabs of, um, of viscous a pastel, um, which appear as thickly applied paint. It's a miniaturist's technique. Um, so these, these blobs here, and there's a good example upstairs, well, there's lots of examples, but there's a picture, Le Criture, a, a painting from Vienna that has a little boy holding a candle and a gentleman with a big fat ring on his finger, and it's uh, a, a stone which is glinting, and it just looks like it's, uh, it's, it's got catching the light. It's an amazing technique that he used, this just dots of impasto of white and then scraping away a little bit of it. Just techniques like that, you can appreciate what a master Leotard was with his medium. Pastel portrait painting reached its height um, in popularity in the 1780s and 90s. Leotard died in the late 80s, um, and pastel portraiture slipped out of favour along with everything else to do with the Rococo style with which it was associated. Um, a small following of pastelists remained, and pastels continued to be made. I think they got a little bit of a reputation for being decadent and effeminate, partly to do with many of the fluffy um, subject matters that had been drawn in the past and continued to be used as a, uh, a ladies' drawing medium. Um, there was a 19th century revival which began with artists such as Millet, uh, Jean-Francois Millet, that is, who... Um, the style and subject matter of his drawings are obviously so far removed from anything of the 18th century pastel portraits. It was as if pastels were being recreated and used in, in a, a completely new um, format. You can also see that his 
technique is more like drawing on paper, and um, you can see the paper through through the uh, through the the surface of the of the medium. He was interested in using pastel in a very different way and not being uh, super real as uh, as Leotard had been interested in presenting people. Um, the, in the later 19th century, the pre-Raphaelites also um, began using pastel as a medium and the Tate, where I work, has quite a few Rossettis in the collection, um, such as this st study for the head on the right, which... Uh, which heralded a new a new time for pastels in Western art, and led to um, the impressionists using pastels in uh, um, huge quantities uh, were were um, pumped out by artists such as Degas, Lautrec, and others. Um, the Tate also has several Degas in their collection, which are very popular. They don't go on display very often, but we've, we've been lucky enough to learn quite a bit about Degas' technique from studying them. Degas was uh, famous for his very inventive technique with pastel. He, he was constantly experimenting. He pushed paper, he pushed the pastels to their limit, combined techniques, mixed up uh, fixatives, um, gouache, tempera, liquid thinners with his pastels, diluted them with water, applied them with brushes. Uh, he, he had such a bold application, it became, it's, it's quite, a, quite a tricky puzzle to unravel exactly how his pastels are put together. You can see from these some details here, the way he spattered on reds, drew lines together, cross-hatched, didn't care about the sweetening techniques of the 18th century, but used a much broader, more obvious drawing method. Very vigorous, very fast, fixing each layer as he went, leaving the last layer unfixed. Pastels in the 20th century and now um, still continue to be used and they have been revived to some degree by people like Paul Arego. This is a over a metre by a metre and a half um, work on paper of uh, Paul Arego's in the collection of the Tate. It's it uses thickly applied schmink pastels uh, applied in layers, fixed between layers as Degas did with acrylic resin fixatives. It has a very delicate surface, even though it's a big, bold-looking work, it easily suffers losses. The artist actually requested that the work didn't travel beyond London when we acquired it. The paper is very thick, 300 GSM, almost cardboard. Um, it's a good quality paper. It has a grey acrylic primer with granular finish suitable for pastels. Um, it's stuck to an aluminium panel with wooden subframe and some, some offsetting occurs every time it's moved, even though we move it very carefully. Um, the Rocher on the right, sorry, the Rocher um, is just a, a reminder that pastel can be used in very subtle ways and still, still is. Rocher just uh, lightly applied this pastel, smudged it in using a charcoal underdrawing and stenciling out his words, um, it's a fixed, a fixed uh, drawing, um, which which sits framed in a standard size frame with a spacer in front of it. So it's um, 
treated more as a general, as we would treat our drawings in, on paper. The conservation of pastels is, is a challenge. The principal causes of pastel, of pastel deterioration are the friability and dryness of the pastel, which causes detachment from the support, any sort of dampness or humidity in the environment, which can cause microorganisms to happily attack the gums and other edible parts of, of, of pastels, and it also causes movement in the uh, sheets of paper or vellum, um, and light exposure, which causes fading and discoloration. The physical complexity of multiple layered works, such as pastels, on vellum or paper, on canvas, on stretches, um, and they're made of porous and permeable materials as well, means that conservators have a lot to think about when they're caring for them. Conservation treatments and attitudes to conservation of pastels has changed radically over the years. Highly interventive treatments, which may have been carried out in the past, are no longer done so. Occasionally, treatments involving very controlled humidity need to be undertaken to release stresses in, in vellum sheets, for instance. Um, or remove staining, but generally a preference is to avoid interventions, um, stabilise mechanical damage, release stresses and improve the housing and storage. Quickly show you that cross-section of framing of pastels, general framing of pastels always needs to include a spacer between the, the pastel surface and the glazing surface and that's probably the single most important part of framing pastels. Um, other, um, other aspects of conservation framing of pastels includes acid-free materials, non-static glazing, space between the pastel and glazing. Some semi-sealed packages are included or trays inside the works and um, polyester wadding sometimes used behind the support to reduce vibrations and shock. Many works retain their old glazing these days, which is a change. Um, in the exhibition upstairs, you'll see the rippled glass effect of, um, of, of old glazings on some, and it does look fantastic. Uh, many others were changed to a, um, a product called Optium, which is a new low-static, low-reflective acrylic, which is used uh, these days in many pictures around the world. Um, and many of the frames you'll see from the side have build-ups, quite deep build-ups, which means the frame has been modified to give more space between the glazing and the work or to put these internal boxes or sleeves inside the framing package. I'll show you these images of a pastel being packed at Tate in a double, um, a double case. Loans used to be rare of pastels and we've got lots of um, records uh, in, the, in the paper conservation um, office of uh, refusals to loan through to the 80s, 1980s. Um, loans uh, used to be just turned down point blank for, for pastels. And some galleries still do strictly refuse all loans. The Louvre and Madrid being cases such as that. Um, it, the decision to loan nowadays is based on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, the change in heart is based mainly on testing that's been carried out on the safety of our um, packing materials and the standards of the art transit um, companies that we use and the handling in general. Uh, Tate was at the forefront of art transport investigations and packing techniques in the 1990s.
Um, usually the uh, agreement to loan is based on caveats such as not for long periods, restricting the venues, limiting the length of the loan, very specific requirements such as um, packing, transport, handling, couriers with each loan and conditions of display, security, etc. The installation of this show here was um, quite unusually um, long, took, took longer than a, a regular oil painting installation because of the necessity to have couriers checking all the works, the length of time taken to check works, and the necessity for um, the installation of rooms and walls being done in particular order to avoid vibrations and shock of uh, works being attached to the walls at different times. So it was very closely monitored. And the rooms themselves um, have temperature and RH um, monitoring at all times, of course, with very strict parameters in place. Most works um, for this exhibition travelled face up and flat in cases such as this. Um, some some um, lenders travel works vertically. Um, it's not it's not it's not sure which um, which is the answer. But at the moment, works tra travelling horizontally is the accepted way to travel works by most major lenders. In the exhibition of pastels. I'm sure you know, know that the low light levels are there for a reason, to um, protect the pastels for as long as possible and keep them, the, the colours and the papers and vellums in good condition. Um, if done sensitively, like they have been in the leotard, levels are adequate for viewing. When the, when the, when the works aren't on display, the ones at the Tate stay in their frames all the time, in air-conditioned storage environments. In some institutions, they have special pastel storage furniture in special rooms. The Odeon Redon collection in the Gallery Orsay has a fantastic room for storage, storage of its pastels. Solander boxes, such as you see in reading rooms, are still used. And of course, there's no interleaving on the surface of the pastels. I think I better hand over to Joe before I talk anymore, and you can see some pastel making in process. I was just going to show you, first of all, pastels that are available today, um, starting with hard pastels, also known as Conte crayons. Um, these were traditionally used for preliminary sketching of compositions. They were developed in 1795 by uh, Nicolas Jacques Conte in France. They use, he used natural pigments, and they're still used with natural pigments today. Um, iron oxides, carbon black, titanium dioxide. China clay is the binder that's used. <coughs> it's the filler, sorry, that's used. They are extruded into square sticks. Carré means square, so that's... They're, they're then heated to a known point, which is how they differ from soft pastels, which aren't heated, they're just left to dry. And they range from HB to 2B. So the HB has more clay in them than the 2B, which has very little. So it's the clay filler that is making the hard 
pastel. Um, oil pastel, which is this one. Oil pastel, pigment, binder, linseed oil, and hydrocarbon waxes make the oil pastel, usually beeswax. It's got a, a soft, buttery consistency. You can have a feel of these afterwards, if you like, which is, again, in comparison to the soft pastel, which is much more powdery. It's, it's more of a sort of greasy mark that the oil pastel makes. Um, the oil stick as well, you can get, I don't have an oil stick, the oil stick is made with beeswax and a slightly harder canuba wax which forms a dry paint film. The oil pastels tend to have a softer paint film which doesn't always dry. Uh, pastel pencil, this is pigment, binder, china clay and a filler. Um, it's harder than the soft pastels. It's very good for detailing those hard lines. The Carriera used to um, sharpen some of the harder pastels and yeah. use them just like a pastel pencil, didn't she? That's right. Um, they're usually marketed as the clean alternative to the soft pastels. You don't get so dusty. It's much, much cleaner. And then there's a water-soluble pastel. That's what, sorry, yeah, that's, that's the oil pastel. The water-soluble pastel, it feels like the oil pastel for drawing because it's slightly oily, but it's got a, a water-soluble component in it, which is polyethylene glycol, so you can just apply water and make a wash of colour very easily. Um, so those are the pastels, really, that are available today. Characteristics of soft pastels. I've got a quote from Leotard. Um, he liked using them because of the great ease with which one colour can be blended with another and with which one can rework more or less without having to repaint. So, as Rosie said, it was to do with productivity. You could rework a painting without having to wait for the layers to dry as you do with oil painting. But going back to the characteristics, soft pastels, well, they allow for blending, because you can move them with your fingers, um, and hard pastel for detail. So you could exploit, there are possibilities in exploiting contrast of marks. Um, Soft pastel as well exploits the fact that it crumbles. It's difficult for some because it does seem like there's suddenly a lot of powder to use and it can be very frustrating if a particularly soft crumbly pastel just sort of breaks in mid-stroke. It depends how hard you press, but it's something that you get used to, definitely. It has a matte quality and a certain luminosity which people really like as well. So as Rosie said, commercial sets, they weren't very well made in the 18th century. Um, and Stupan, he was the maker in Lausanne in Switzerland. He was making the best pastels, the best commercial sets. They were being sold here today. Uh, they were being sold, sorry, in the UK then. 
but they were really for artists who didn't have the technical knowledge to make their own. You really did have to have a technical knowledge to know how to make your own. But also for those artists who travelled with their work, they were convenient for them. And Leotard probably did buy some of the commercially made ones, as well as making his own. Got some pretty antique-looking boxes of pastels from Tate's collection of media. But manufacturers today tend to make sets with consistent handling and pigment qualities. They do vary in texture, some are a lot softer than others, and also in colour intensity, much like brands of oil paint. You probably end up choosing the brands that you know and trust. Artist professional, or, well, artist grade or professional grade, whatever you like to call it, they tend to use, for their soft pastels, permanent pigments. And manufacturers will usually state on the label what pigments they've used. If they don't, then there may be some doubt as to whether they've used permanent pigments or not. Uh, artist grade tend to be hand-rolled and left to dry naturally. There's a bigger colour range. Sennelier, for example, have 525 cut shades in their range, so it's a, it's a huge number. Whereas in the 18th century, there was about 50 or 60 was considered to be an enormous amount. And a lot of, there was a lot of talent involved in making that many, so yeah. 500 is quite impressive. Uh, not all of the artist grade are very soft. They do make some artist grade ones that are slightly firmer. The Conte ones, for example, they're slightly firmer. So they can take a bit more handling than the really crumbly ones. Um, students grade, in comparison, they tend to be... Pigment saturation tends to be a bit weaker. They may not, they'll use less expensive pigments or they'll extend their pigments with chalks or use dyes and lakes to keep the production costs low. So in terms of consistency, durability and permanence, don't expect too much, but they do have their values um, and they're cheaper. Composition of soft pastels, as Rosie said, pigments, binding liquid and water, which is mainly water with additives, and sometimes some pastels will need a preservative and maybe a wetting agent. Certainly since the 19th century, the range and availability of pigments has increased hugely. Some pigments have disappeared over time due to natural resources being depleted or restricted because of toxicity. But the increase in the number of synthetically produced pigments is close to the performance of old pigments, such as lapis lazuli and cinnabar, Vermilion. Prussian blue, which Leotard used, that was discovered in 1704, that's been replaced by permanent and the very strong synthetic organic thalo pigments. In 1928, thalo blue and, and 1935, thalo green. The thalo pigments are, are relatively easy, uh, cheap to produce. Um, most of these modern synthetic pigments are brighter and stronger and, and certainly more flexible than the older traditional pigments, but the powders can be very, very light and fluffy. And so, compared to the old denser pigments, are quite difficult sometimes to disperse in water and will need a wetting agent, such as alcohol. But they are 
produced by manufacturers in um, paste form as aqueous dispersions, which is very convenient for making pastels because you would just have to add a bit of filler and a bit of binder. So particular pigments do need particular combinations of binder and filler for a particular colour strength and consistency. Different pigments offer different binding properties. Cadmium, red and yellow, you couldn't just mix those with water. It would make just a very crumbly stick which would just collapse as soon as you used to use it. So the chromatic strength is retained by the binder. It's very important for that. But there are pigments that you can bind just with water. The clay pigments have innate binding qualities because of the clay content. So they can just be mixed with water. Some pigments are not light fast. They will fade. Leotard's painting of Prince George, the Prince of Wales, he used a red lake in that painting. He used a red lake which was fugitive and he was warned against it at the time, but he continued to use it. He obviously liked it. And it's lost much of its hue. I think if you look at the painting, the coat is really very pale. It was bright red once. Lake colour, they're pigments made from more or less coloured particles that are coloured with a dye. It's a way of making a dye, which is a solution into a powdered pigment. And the ones used today are chosen for light fastness. The synthetic organic pigments, the thallo pigments that I mentioned, they're essentially colorants fixed onto a transparent base, so they've got similar properties to the original lake pigments. Leotard in his treatise, I'd ha again I've got a quote, he did say, spend as much as necessary to obtain the brightest, the most beautiful, the most solid, the deepest, and the best ground colors. Such colors are useful in any kind of paint. So it's clearly important to him. The binders used in the 18th century were gum arabic for soft pastels as they were for watercolours, but they'd already found that gum tragacanth was better. Alternative combinations with water were used when the gums weren't available or too expensive, and Rosie's mentioned them, olive oil, honey, stale beer, milk, and oatmeal mm. gruel were additives that people added to water to mix with particular pigments. The property of the binder is important. It's got to be strong enough to make a stick that won't break when you're handling it, but also soft enough for that lovely desirable pastel effect. So you want as little binder as possible? Yeah. Right? yeah. Without binder though, some pigments just couldn't be used effectively as a medium. And too strong a binder, the stick would be very hard and possibly unworkable on paper. So gum tragacanth, it's a natural gum of, of plant sap that's dried and ground into powder. So it's very, very finely ground. And you just soak it in water. It forms a gel overnight, about 24 hours. Then you strain it. And uh, stock solution is reduced to about four or five diluted strengths. If you want to use it over a period of time, you'd need to add a preservative. It doesn't last for too long. And gum tragacanth is usually chosen if you want to make a fairly soft stick. Gum arabic, on the other hand, for a harder stick. But in the 20th century, um, methyl cellulose, oh no, there it is, that's the methyl cellulose, has been chosen um, 
by a lot of pastel makers as a better binder to use. Its advantages are that it doesn't need a preservative. Again, it absorbs water and turns into a gel overnight and can be diluted. It's a converted starch powder. Is that what you used for your pastels, Jo? I used a mix. I've got a list of what I used. I used gum tragacanth and methyl cellulose and water. The filler, um, filler's added according to, again, according to the properties of the pigment and the texture of the stick you require. The word filler suggests an inert material that extends the mixture, but in fact it's essential part of the physical nature of the stick, which determines the handling properties and also achieves the range of tones. I've made a range of tones here. Um, the filler does... I'll, I'll, keep calling it the filler because that's what it's known as. It does make a smoother consistency um, and some pigments, some of the synthetic pigments particularly and the ultramarine are very difficult to mix on their own so the filler does help in getting the pigment into a paste. China clay is... Oh yes, it's here. China clay which is a form of aluminium silicate or kaolin, is used, was used as a filler after 1760. It's also used in colour pencils and graphite pencils, and that's, it's quite a popular filler material to use. Talc is another one that people used, also known as French chalk or Taylor's chalk. It makes a very crumbly stick, so it's often used in combination with something else. Uh, calcium carbonate chalk precipitated calcium carbonate, precipitated chalk, makes a smoother stick. Because it's been precipitated from solution, it's fine and pure a powder as, as possible. So it does make a slightly smoother mixture than just chalk, which is also known as whiting or Paris white, which is slightly coarser and doesn't make, makes a slightly harder stick compared to china clay, for example. Too much chalk, though, you'll get a, end up with a very brittle stick. Um, but in combination with china clay, it makes a smoother stick. Analysis found chalk in Leotard's paintings, which yes. was probably the filler yes. that was used for his pastels. But they also used powdered fish scales <laughs> as a filler how that works. in those days. How that worked, I don't know. Um, Moving on to papers, characteristics. Paper was, is mainly used these days for pastel painting. Characteristics to take into account, weight and absorbency, tooth and texture. This is particularly texture, this one. Um, the heavier papers, as Rosie mentioned, they have a firmness to withstand the pressure of pastel. A rag, watercolour or drawing paper is suitable. And also, if you're using water, then no cockling um, will happen. But yeah. you do need a roughness, a texture to the paper. I don't know if you They used very coarse utilitarian papers. And Lely, Lely really, just that, that was how he was happy using brown wrapping papers and those, those sort of papers, which are what English um, paper producers were making at that time. But um, as advances happened with, in the papermaking industry, then better papers were produced and pastelists were able to choose 
printing papers and papers that were sized at just the right amount so that the paper surface was um, able to pick up the, you know, the pastel pigments, but um, not, not to let them run away or not too smooth. And uh, coloured papers, are you going to talk about coloured papers? What a few. Colour papers are often chosen as well as a contrast to the colours used. English papers were often blue because of their blue um, sailors' uniforms and things that were used in the papermaking process. And Turner enjoyed using blue papers very much. But they had a natural affinity for pastelists because they gave the mid-tone uh, as, as well as browns. So you could work into your darks and your lights and the colour of the paper um, enhanced the end result. Um, roughness is important though. The pastel needs something to catch on to. If it doesn't, then you're going to need more fixative later to keep the, the pigment in place. There are also specialist papers available, um, granular pastel paper, which has a coating of very fine uh, pumice, which makes like a very fine sandpaper. We don't have any, I'm afraid, or the velour or flocked papers, which has a coating of powdered um, cloth of thin fibers, which gives a very velvety texture to the paper, which is suited to blending and subtly graded tones. Um, and you can also use fabric support if it's mounted and a thin, uh, thin ground applied so it doesn't obscure the weave. I don't know if Leotard used fabric. I'm not sure if he did. Uh, most of his was, they were, he used paper mounted on, on fabric and stretched. But um, his pre preference was definitely for vellum whenever he could get it. So, sure you've got 10 minutes yeah, left. moving on to techniques quickly. Um, fingers are the only tools you really need for lines and tones. Paper stumps were also used, and Leotard probably used paper stumps made of, these days they're just rolled and bound paper. Um, then they were rolled and bound leather or felt. Um, line and tone, again, the pastel pa uh, pencils are good for this. Hatching was done like this. Um, closely parallel lines. Lines of colour were blended, could blend optically together. Oops. With hatching techniques. That's cross-hatching. Combining colours, shading colours. Yeah, they use the, the long side of the pastels quite a lot, just to cover area and quickly. Degas pastels were analysed and found a lot of salt in them and came to the conclusion that, <laughs> that Degas was very sweatily working with his hand and scumbling <laughs> and um, that his, his own sweat was mingling with the, the pastel medium. So colours can lie over each other and then you can blend them as well with your finger. Scumbling, quickly, scumble, tint. Again, you just apply colour, apply a bit of white. So you'd lighten it, that would be a scumble. Glaze, shading, using a darker, transparent. You can make shades with that, rub it in. Stippling as well, <laughs> just really short strokes, oh. optically blending the colours together. 
and highlights with white. And wetting as well, brushing a thin solution of the binder over. And Leotard again used that, just brushing dilated binder. He would put a wash sometimes on garments, wouldn't he, and then draw into the garment with the dry pastel. So what was his rule about the eight tones um, of pastel? Yes. He preferred to work with nine tones, four light, four dark, and one medium. And I've had tempted to make nine tones here, so you can see them sort of gradating dark through to light. It was recognised in the 18th century that pastels were very fragile, delicate surfaces, and that was a drawback of them, although it was also a great attraction, their, their fragility. And um, there were competitions run by various societies to try and find fixatives that would work without affecting the pastels. In the 1750s, they had all sorts of prizes given in Paris and, and London um, for fixatives, none of which ultimately were perfect, perfect, perfecting the art of fixing pastel. It was acknowledged that all fixing, fixing techniques tended to darken or change the tones of the pastels and made the pastel pigment um, sink into the paper surface. They tried steaming, applying, uh, applying fixatives from the, from the verso, using oils and different sorts of binding medium. And still to this day, I guess, there's a challenge for, for um, artists to, to keep their pastels on the surface without altering the, um, the look of their pastel too much. I guess in conservation, we, um, we agree that it's okay for artists to fix their works, but it's not really okay for conservators to fix the works. So if they're not fixed when they come into the collection, then that's how they remain and we deal with the unfixed works. Right. Why is it a good idea to make your own pastels? Well, it's... it's <laughs> Just might, remind us. You might, you might get some pleasure out of the craft aspect of it. Um, it's relatively easy-ish. You certainly get to learn about the different pigments and their properties. Um, you can make up colours that perhaps you couldn't buy commercially. Different size sticks, I've made small ones and bigger ones. Um, you should make notes as you go along though, because a variety of combinations <laughs> are possible. Um, the earth colours are the easiest ones to start with. I'm going to mix a Venetian red here, which is a synthetic iron oxide. With the earth colours though, they can be a little bit gritty sometimes, so I've added a little bit of china clay to it. So. There's about one and a half tablespoons of pigment and about half a teaspoon of china clay. Just because it makes the stick slightly smoother, it, it gives it that desirable pastel effect, if you like. And because it's an earth colour, all I need to do is add water to the mixture. Certainly, Leotard would have had to have known how pigments behaved if he was making his own pastels, and we think he probably was. Yeah, I think he's training from an early age as a miniaturist and enamelist and then in painting studios. He certainly had the, the knowledge. But a lot of artists didn't. Um, but there were a lot of handbooks, treaties at the time, suggesting different ways 
to make the pastels, what pigments needed, what binders, that sort of thing, fillers. So it was certainly going on quite commonly. So you just mix this. I'm using a palette knife, which is... So this is when I'm making pastry at home and I realise I've added too much if water at the end. If you too much water, you just add a bit more pigment. But what you want to do is make a sort of dough ball sort of consistency. Um, I'm going to make a full strength one to begin with. And then what I've done is I've made... So it's, it's pretty close now to the consistency you want it to be. You don't want it to be too dry. You don't want it to be too wet. Now, with making pastels, obviously there's going to be quite a bit of pigment dust. If you're doing a lot of it, obviously you probably want to avoid the more toxic pigments. They come with a big cross on the front of the package, so you should know what they are. So this is an easier one to mix than the ultramarines were. Yes. I would suggest using gloves. I thought you said you were going to wear a pinny. <laughs> I didn't have time to put it on. <laughs> Just because they're easier to roll, so you just divide it in half, because I'm going to show you very quickly how to make a tone. Roll it into a ball in the palm of your hand. Then you want a bit of absorbent. I'm just going to use this. Absorbent paper, newspaper's fine. And then you just roll it, probably with your index finger. This is quite a fat one. And then just leave it to dry. It really is that simple. How long does it take to dry? About two days or so. And then to make the tones, I've mixed some precipitated calcium carbonate already with binder. So you then just mix the same amount of the white paste with the coloured paste that you've got left and blend it really very well. <laughs> so it takes a bit of time. There is a German chemist called Ostwald who wrote an artist manual in 1907. He said, and I'll just read out what he said, gradations are to be made according to these proportions so that each subsequent mixture contains the same fraction of the preceding <laughs> mixture's colour in accordance apparently with a general law that the eye perceives equal ratios, not equal differences as corresponding gradations. I'll get you to tell me that again after we've had a few <laughs> drinks. So you really do have to mix it in. You can see the strength of that pigment colour. Yeah. You? Just... you don't want it to be streaky, but because we're running out of time, I'm just going to halve it. Again, mix it up. I mean, sorry, roll it up into a ball. And that's your second. So this is your full strength one is A, this is your B. So repeat tone. that another six times. And, <laughs> and then you just continue. And you just keep going. Basically, you probably have a bigger pile of white paste, and you just keep going. So each time it's the same amount of colour to the same amount of white paste. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, well, so yeah, that's it. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.